Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Austrian economics, a little bit about libertarianism, and a little bit about the history of how I met Murray Rothbard. Um, it all started with Ayn Rand for me. I was a buddy of um, um, Bernie Sanders. We went to high school together. We were on the track team together. My views and his views were roughly the same on political economy. Uh, we were sort of pretty good friends, not bosom buddies, but, you know, good uh, acquaintances, friends. And we both graduated uh, Madison High School in 59, and we went to Brooklyn College in um, uh, 63, uh, in, in 59, when we graduated high school. And I was sort of a pinko commie like Bernie. And um, then Ayn Rand came to speak at Brooklyn College when I was, I don't know, I guess a junior in college. And I came to boo and hiss her because, you know, she favored free enterprise. And everyone knows that free enterprise is horrible. It leads to poverty and starvation and misery. And um, then what happened is they announced that there would be a, uh, a lunch in her honor and anyone could come, even if you disagreed. And I want to see if I can um, uh, use my screen for one second. I want to draw you a picture of uh, the... the, the um, the lunch, it was a long, long table like this. And Ayn Rand was sitting at the head of the table. Here's Ayn Rand. And um, I'm going to make her not, not smiling. There she is. And Nathalia Brandon was sitting over here. And uh, Peacock, this is Brandon. And this is Peacock and Alan Greenspan here. And I was, rel can, every can everyone see this um, screen? Yes? Good. Okay. And um, boy, my handwriting is pretty crummy. And in any case, I was relegated to the foot of the table over here and I'm smiling because I want to show that um, socialism is great. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, you know, socialism is great. The, you know, free enterprise is no good. And he said, well, I don't really know that much about it, but the people at the other end of the table do. So I went over here and I stuck my head in between Nathaniel Brannan and Ayn Rand. And I said, hey, there's a socialist here who wants to debate someone on socialism and capitalism. And they said, who is it? I said, me. And I was, you know, maybe a, a junior in college and Brandon maybe 35 and Rand maybe 50 years old. But now let me get back to out of here. But Brandon was very nice, uh, very gentle, uh, very generous, said, look, uh, there's no room at this end of the table to discuss these things, but if you come, uh, but I'll come to the other end of the table and talk to you about it under two conditions. What were the two conditions? First of all, um, I had to agree to not allow the conversation to lapse, but to keep going until we settled something and uh, settled the issues. And secondly, I would read two books. And the two books he recommended were Atlas Shrugged and Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Well, I read the two books and I um, came to uh, his house and to Ayn Rand's house. They lived in the... Um, um, uh, uh, downtown Manhattan um, uh, in one of the um, uh, high rises there. And I became converted. I was now a, a Rand, Randroid or a Randian or whatever you want to call me. I never really understood and got, wasn't really that interested in the philosophy or the metaphysics or epistemology or any of that stuff. And A is A sort of left me cold. But the economics I really liked. I, I was a Hazlitt fan. And Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, too. Very good books. Well, um, 
then I went to the NBI, the Nathaniel Brannan Institute, and um, it was interesting, but it was sort of cultish. You know, if you agreed with Ayn Rand, if you asked a question like on page 402, you said this, could you elaborate? Oh, that would be a great question. But if you said on page 402 of Atlas Shrugged, you said this, but on page 789, you said that, how do you reconcile that? She would kick you out. It was the most amazing thing. So I had this sort of schizophrenic approach avoidance. These were the only free enterprise people I knew. So I'd go there and then I'd be disgusted with occultism and then I'd be away for six months and then I'd go back. And, and then I was um, at uh, Columbia University getting a PhD and uh, Larry Moss uh, was a, um, a fellow student of mine. He said, you must meet this guy, Murray Rothbard. He's an anarchist. And I said, what, an anarchist? Uh, I don't want to meet him. Uh, anarchism is crazy. I was um, a Randian, remember? Now I have to show you my shirt where, where I'm coming from now, as you can see. Um, I'm a Rothbardian in, in many ways. And uh, finally, Jerry Wallows, Larry's roommate, um, and Larry ganged up on me. I remember we were standing on Broadway and 116th Street near Columbia. And uh, finally, they said, well, you know, you got to meet Murray. So I, I went and I met Murray. And, and that really changed my life. Um, I, uh, you know, Murray was not a cultist. He would allow you to disagree with him. Uh, my big problem uh, with Murray is stomach cramps. Uh, I would just, he would, he was so funny. He would just keep you laughing for hours. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go to his um, apartment and, um, and I would just laugh uproariously at his jokes. He, he was just so funny. And I remember uh, when I first met him after, uh, he converted me to anarchism in about 10 minutes, sort of using Hazlitt against me. I mean, one of the uh, essences of Hazlitt is, well, you know, competition makes a better product. Uh, the reason we have pretty good shirts and shoes is we have competition. And if you don't do a good job, you have to exit. And if you do a good job, you make profits and you can uh, uh, stay in the business. And I said, well, why doesn't that apply to... Um, you know, you could see that it applies to the post office. Why can't you see that it applies to police or to courts or, or anything else? And uh, in about 10 minutes, I was an anarchist. I had a lot more trouble with Austrianism because I was getting my PhD under Gary Becker and um, Jacob Mincer, and, and they were neoclassical economists. And it was much more difficult for me to become an Austrian. And I'm going to talk about that in, in a little bit. But um, one problem I had with Murray was the stomach cramps from laughing. The other problem I had was when I first met him, I was reading uh, Man, Economy, and State. And Man, Economy, and State, as you, I'm sure, know, uh, is, is one of the best books ever written, uh, way up there with um, uh, human action. And uh, the idea, I was sort of an insignificant you know, little kid and, you know, Murray was this genius who just wanted to be my friend. And I couldn't get, I couldn't wrap my mind around that because I, I, I sort of exalted him or I don't know, I, I put him up on a pedestal and I, I, I wasn't able to be his friend, even though he wanted to be my friend. That only came many years later. Well, that's my introduction to how I met Murray. And now what I'd like to do is to talk just a little bit more about Murray and uh, then talk a little bit about Austrian economics and libertarianism. Murray was not only an, an Austrian economist, he was also a libertarian. 
And uh, putting those two together was something unique at the time. Nowadays, maybe we, we don't appreciate it that much because we live in a Rothbardian world, at least uh, at the Mises Institute. And not only that, but he also combined that with foreign policy. And uh, Murray had sort of a left-wing foreign policy uh, namely non-interventionism like Ron Paul. And this was then seen as, well, you know, you're contradicting yourself. If you favor free enterprise, you have to want to bomb uh, the Russians or, or you know, engage in imperialism. And, 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 and also, you know, what's this with legalizing drugs and legalizing uh, prostitution? You know, that those are left-wing kinds of things and you're supposed to be a right-winger. And, you know, even nowadays we have uh, the Federalist Society, which is uh, sort of an amalgamation of libertarians and conservatives. And a lot of people think that we're just a branch of conservatives. And Murray was um, adamant that no, 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 uh, Austro-libertarianism is very different. Uh, we're not just a branch of conservatism. We're a unique, uh, sui generis uh, kind of operation. And, and even the word Austro-libertarianism is, is a little difficult because Austrianism uh, is uh, an economic discipline. It's a branch of economics or an uh, economic philosophy, whereas libertarianism is not. Libertarianism is normative, whereas um, Austrianism is positive. So yes, I think I would call myself an Austro-libertarian just for shorthand, but we always have to distinguish between the normative and the positive. And uh, the normative is you know, what's right and what's just, and that's libertarianism. Whereas the positive is what causes what? How do we understand the economy? How do we explain what's going on? So let me just talk a little bit about um, libertarianism and then I'll talk about Austrianism uh, for most of, most of the time and then maybe have some questions or comments. Well, uh, the way I see libertarianism, it's um, uh, predicated on the non-aggression principle. You can do anything you want just keep your midst to yourself. Don't grab other people or their property against their will. <clears throat> you, can grab, <clears throat> you can grab other people uh, and their property if you have their permission. For example, if we're in a boxing match and we agree and, and you punch me in the nose, I can't say, aha, assault and battery and, and want to put you in jail because we've agreed to be um, uh, uh, hit each other. Um, uh, even sadomasochism would be okay between consenting adults. I have to tell you my SM joke, uh, the, uh, the um, masochist asks the sadist, beat me, and the sadist says, no. <laughs> well, maybe it's not that very funny. What do I know? I'm, I'm trying to channel Murray Rothbard and his humor, but I'm not doing as well as I could. Okay, uh, so the non-aggression principle, but the non-aggression principle is not enough because uh, suppose I grab one of your shirts. I, I just go over and, and grab one of your, the shirts that one of you guys are wearing. Uh, have I violated the non-aggression principle? Well, it depends upon who owns the shirt. Um, if you stole it from me yesterday, I'm just repossessing it. Whereas uh, I, I don't know those shirts from a hole in the wall. They're all your shirts. And if I grab them, I am uh, initiating violence against you. But we need a, a theory of private property rights in order to determine who owns what. So the non-aggression principle is not enough. The other side of the coin of libertarianism is uh, private property rights. And here uh, we go to um, John Locke and Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe and, and uh, Stefan Kinsella, who've done great work on, on, uh, on the initiation of private property rights. So that would sort of be um, 
uh, my overview of what libertarianism is. And since this is a Mises University on Austrian economics, let me talk a little bit about that. So what is Austrian economics? As you all know, it's got nothing to do with the economics of Austria. It's just that the people who started it, uh, Menger, Bomberwerk, um, um, uh, Mises, Hayek, all happen to live in Austria. Uh, it's similar to the Chicago School of Economics. It's got nothing to do with the economics of the city of Chicago. It's rather that um, uh, Becker and, and Stigler and Friedman were all at the University of Chicago and they had a distinctive uh, school of, of economics. Okay, um, so what is Austrian economics? Uh, the way I see uh, Austrian economics is that it is um, uh, not an empirical science, it's matter, rather a matter of logic. Um, uh, what we, we don't really test hypotheses uh, and um, that would be, you know, uh, we have this thing called physics envy where the physics people, what they do is they, um, uh, they have a hypothesis and then they test it. And if the hypothesis uh, is not falsified, then they tentatively agree with it. Uh, the way I see Austrian economics, it's not like that at all. It's rather that uh, we uh, start off with basic principles and we deduce from there. So it's more of a branch of logic or a, a branch of uh, mathematics than it is an empirical science. For example, um, uh, I, I notice the, the guy in, in the front row um, on, on the right has got a blue shirt. Raise your hand, the guy, there he is. Okay, he's got a blue shirt. He paid 20 bucks for that blue shirt. I, as an Austrian economist, deduce from that fact that at the time uh, he um, purchased the shirt, he uh, valued it ex ante at more than 20 bucks. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bought it. And um, the guy who sold him that shirt valued that shirt at less than 20 bucks. Otherwise, he wouldn't have um, uh, sold him the shirt for 20 bucks. So we can deduce just from that fact that he bought that shirt, that ex ante, he benefited and, and the sellers benefited. So there's mutual benefit from voluntary trade. Now, how are you going to test that? I, 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 I I mean, how can you falsify that? If you understand the English language or in any other language in which this is put, you know that when uh, there's voluntary trade, there's mutual benefit uh, on, on both sides, and, and it's untestable. Uh, there's this guy, um, Brian Kaplan from um, uh, George Mason, and I, uh, somehow I got into a little bit of a debate with him, and I tried this on him, and, and, and he denied this, and, and he, he spoke eloquently, but I couldn't understand what he was talking about. It, it just seems so uh, undeniable and, and untestable and unfalsifiable. And, um, you, you know, um, uh, the way um, logicians uh, uh, look at language, they say, well, there's either um, the tautologies uh, like bachelors or unmarried men, which are absolutely uh, true and undeniable, but say nothing about the real world, only say things about how we define terms like a bachelor is an unmarried man. And then there are empirical statements like it's raining outside or I'm wearing a, a black shirt or a Rothbard shirt. And this could be true and not true. So we don't know that it's apodictically necessarily true, but it certainly speaks about the real world. Well, Austrian economics believes in a thing called the synthetic a priori, namely there are statements that are necessarily true and also tell us about the real world. For example, voluntary trade benefits both people uh, in the ex ante sense, not necessarily ex post, 
um, you know, uh, you might have uh, regretted buying that shirt and, you know, maybe the shirt is out of style or it frays too early or uh, too quickly or something like that. But uh, other than that, um, we believe in praxeology, namely there are certain statements that are absolutely true and undeniable and also uh, say something about the real world. And, and this is seen by people like Gary Becker and um, James Buchanan as um, cultish or religion. And they don't mean religion in the positive sense. I once invited James Buchanan to speak at Loyola and he came and I promised myself I wouldn't attack him because I'm his host, I have to be nice. And he, he just said, well, Austrian is, is a cult. And I lost it and I you know, went into a five, 10 minute uh, diatribe and I expected him to you know, say something and he just ignored me. Um, let me tell you my story about Gary Becker. Uh, I was doing my PhD dissertation with him on um, rent control. And my, you know, I was doing a bunch of econometric equations and uh, uh, the independent variable was how long did we have rent control for? And my thesis was that the more rent control, the more city, the, uh, my observations with cities, the more the city had rent control, the worse housing would be holding everything else constant that I could think of, like, I don't know, the weather and, and crime rates and um, income and anything else that I could think of that would otherwise impact housing quality. And most of the time I got good results. The, um, the um, uh, sign of the independent variable presence or absence of rent control was um, appropriate, negative, namely the more rent control, the worse housing. And uh, usually I would get statistical significance at the 5% level and all was well, but every once in a while I would get the wrong sign. And sometimes the wrong sign was significant and this was horrible. And I went to Gary and I said, you know, look at this. and and he said, you know, he, he was too polite to say, block you moron, go out and do it right. But that's what he was thinking because he was a neoclassical economist. And, um, but actually my thesis is that if you scratch a good neoclassical economist, a good one like Gary Becker, you're gonna get an Austrian because he didn't, he didn't say, oh, I've got this young genius. I was young at that time getting my PhD. He didn't say, I got this young genius. He's going to overturn everything we know about rent control. He's going to show that, you know, rent control is really helpful to housing quality. Instead, he said, go out and do it until you get it right. Well, what was testing what? Was my stupid empirical econometric equation equations uh, testing the, the apodictic necessity that when you have rent control, other things equal, ceteris paribus, you'll have worse housing? No, it's the other way around. Namely, the praxeology was testing the, the, uh, the empirical work and finding the empirical work usually okay, but you know sometimes, sometimes wrong. So um, th this is, so the way I see Austrian economics, this is the essence of Austrian economics. This is a, you know, a crucial part of Austrian economics. Um, uh, the quintessential part of Austrian economics. And yet there are people who are Austrians. I remember, um, I, I won't mention his name. I don't want to embarrass him, but I, um, he gave a speech on Austrian economics to a certain group. And then uh, a month later, I gave a speech to the, the same group. And he never mentioned this. And, and it's, it's if two Austrians are just talking about very different things. He was talking about other elements of Austrian economics. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, 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 
Austrian economists have got many other things to say, uh, and he talked about some of them, you know, a theory of business cycles and, and uh, I don't know, uh, interpersonal comparison, utility, stuff like that. But he didn't mention praxeology. And to me, praxeology is the very core, the essence of Austrian economics. Uh, let me just give you a few more examples, which are uh, unrefutable synthetic a priori statements necessarily true and yet tell us about how the real world of the the real economic world actually works for example there's a tendency for profits to equalize in different industries there's a tendency for profits to fall to zero and they will be zero in the ere and we're never at the ere uh, equilibrium but we're always tending in that direction um, any tendency variable is unrefuted because I say that there's a tendency for profits to equalize in all industries. And you point out, well, the industry A has got 50% profit and industry B has got 40% profit, that that doesn't refute it because it's a tendency. And the te all tendency claims are, um, are synthetic A priorities. Another one is um, minimum wage law creates um, unemployment of uh, people whose productivity is less than uh, the level mandated by the minimum wage. Uh, that would be another example. Okay, uh, let me now uh, another. Let, let me now talk about a few other things about Austrian economics other than praxeology. I think praxeology is crucially important, but there are other elements of it, and I thought I'd you know sort of hit a few of the high spots as as I see. Uh, uh, other elements of it. Uh, another one is, um, what's this thing? Um, transitivity. Um, the, uh, the way uh, the mainstream people see transitivity, they see it this way. Whoops, I got to erase that. Clear it. Come on, clear all drawings. They see uh, A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, and then they say, therefore, or uh, not bigger, uh, preferable. I mean, if eight is bigger than seven, eight is bigger than six, and six is bigger than three, well, then it follows that eight is also bigger than three. My handwriting is a little bad. I, I hope everyone can see this. Um, uh, is it seeable? Yes? Okay. Uh, so if we prefer apples to bananas and bananas to carrots, will we necessarily prefer apples to carrots? And the mainstream would say yes, because they, they, uh, they have indifference curves, and this is part and parcel of indifference curves. And um, what I would say is, uh, as an Austrian, well, A, A is preferred to B at time T1, and um, B is preferred to C at time T2. Whereas we now make a, a, a choice between A and C at time T3, and we could change our taste. There's nothing wrong with changing our taste. Look, if, if team A beats team B and team B beats team C, will it necessarily mean that team A beats team C? No, of course not. So uh, transitivity is, is a problem. Okay, another, uh, another issue, um, uh, another difference between the mainstream and, and us guys is a thing called um, cardinal and ordinary utility. Now, we believe in ordinary utility. Ordinary utility is fine. I like um, apples better than bananas, and I like bananas better than carrots, and 
if tr offered a choice uh, between them, I'll pick apples first. And if I have all three and, and a hoodlum comes up and steals, uh, and demands that I give him one, I'll give him the carrots because I don't like the carrots as much. So we Austrians have no problem with ordinal utility. But we have a problem with cardinal utility because look, uh, every time you, um, uh, you have a uh, downward sloping marginal utility curve, and here is the marginal utility of X, and here is X. Well, what do you think you have on this axis? What you have is over here, utils. Boy, my, my U is not as good as it should be, utils. Well, if you have utils, you're in, um, uh, what do you call it, um, cardinal utility. Uh, we're counting utils. We're saying apples have 10 utils and bananas have five utils, and therefore we like apples twice as much as bananas? Well, you know, that's nonsense on a stick. So um, here would be another divergence between um, Austrians and, and neoclassicals. And now you have this uh, thing, um, uh, indifference curves. So here is uh, apples and here is bananas and you have a, a budget line and, and you have an indifference curve. And at this point, uh, what is it? The marginal utility of, um, apples over the price of apples is supposed to be the same as or equal to the marginal utility of bananas over the price of bananas. Well, once, once you're dividing marginal utility by a number, you're in cardinal utility. So this whole thing is, uh, you know, nonsense. And, and we Austrians don't believe in indifference. We only believe in preference. Yes, yes, uh, the word indifference, um, uh, uh, has a perfectly good meaning uh, in the English language. We're, we're not denying that. But, but whenever you act, whenever you engage in acting, you are preferring this to that. You know, if you buy that shirt, you prefer the, the shirt to the dollar. And, and if you're selling the shirt, you prefer the dollar to, to the shirt. So we Austrians are not real big fans of, um, uh, of indifference curves and of um, uh, cardinal utility. So that would be one more example. Let me... Um, I think I'm supposed to go from 10 to 10.45, so I'm going to stop in about a couple of minutes so we can have uh, questions, discussion, dialogue. Let me just give you one more example where we Austrians uh, diverge from the, uh, from the mainstream, and that's antitrust. I mean, you know, Milton Friedman is supposed, you know, the Chicago school is supposed to be the free enterprise school, but they all, they, they like antitrust. And how do they uh, justify antitrust? The way they do it is they have this, um, uh, this diagram uh, here is price, and here is quantity, and here is a um, what do you call it? An average cost curve. Average cost. Here is a marginal cost curve, which intersects the um, average cost curve at the bottom point, and here is a um, what do you call it? A demand curve. It's supposed to be a straight line, but what the heck? Doing my best. And here is a marginal revenue curve, which has got twice the slope and it hits the marginal cost curve right here. So this is where uh, the monopoly uh, produces. This is a point M and here is the point C for competition. In other words, um, here's where the monopoly will locate and, and there's where the competitor will locate. Raise your hands if you're familiar with this curve. Ah, okay. Most most people are familiar with this curve. Okay, so 
uh, what's the indictment of monopoly? Well, the indictment of monopoly, well, you know, <laughs> we shouldn't even call it monopoly because uh, for the Austrians, monopoly means a, um, a what do you call it? A, um, um, a government grant of privilege, you know, the salt monopoly or, or the sugar monopoly or the candlestick monopoly uh, where the government will not allow people uh, to, to sell these things unless they get government permission. That's what Austrians think of as monopoly. But what these people think of monopoly is um, um, uh, concentration. You know, if you have a four firm concentration ratio higher than some amount, some arbitrary amount, you have the monopolistic competition. And if you have a single seller, uh, you have a monopoly. Well, you know, I'm the single seller of, of Walter Block services. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm a monopolist. Uh, the whole thing is, is crazy. But uh, the indictment is that the price of the monopolist will be higher than the price of the competition. And, and, the, uh, and, and high prices are bad. Don't ask why. And, and the, the quantity of the monopolist will be less than the quantity of the uh, com competitor. And that's also very bad. Don't ask me why we want more quantity rather than less quantity. It seems arbitrary to me. And, and then um, uh, there's profit that, that can be earned. There's zero profits here, but um, where the, uh, the profits here are, um, uh, this box here is, is the profit box because um, uh, here's the, the, this box is the total revenue, whereas uh, uh, the, the total costs are, are this box here with the dots. So there's profit and profit is evil. And the worst, but these things aren't as bad because if the monopoly is sold, then you get a, um, uh, another average cost curve up here and they'll still be here, but now they'll be making zero profits. But the big thing over here is this thing called dead weight loss. This is horrible. That's why um, we, we have to have antitrust. And, um, but, you know, uh, Milton Friedman and, and Stigler and Becker, they're very sophisticated. They don't say, well, therefore, you have to have antitrust. What they say is antitrust costs something, and we should only have antitrust when the deadweight loss is greater than the cost of having antitrust, which is sort of a moderate position. But the whole thing is dead from the neck up because this whole deadweight loss thing is a, an exercise in interpersonal comparisons of utility. I just ran into somebody on, on the um, Mises um, blog where he, uh, he was favoring interpersonal comparison utility. I was trying to convince him that, uh, that, that it's an invalid uh, concept. What they're saying is that people value the, uh, this amount of production here with the area under this curve, and it only costs the area under the marginal cost curve, and therefore you have a deadweight loss over here uh, th that is just um, a deadweight loss. You know, that what the government has got to do now is um, one of three things. It's either got to break up the monopoly, in which case they'll locate, instead of at the monopoly point, they'll locate at the competitive point. So one is break them up, another is nationalize them, and we know government can produce things um, uh, very well, and the third is um, a regular them, you know, namely tell them you've got to go with point C. So here is yet another area where Austrians and um, um, uh, neoclassicals diverge, and I'm a big fan of the, um, the Austrian, not the, um, um, not the neoclassical. Well, I uh, aim to speak for about a half hour, and now we've got uh, a little bit less than 15 minutes, so I'm hoping we can have a discussion, dialogue. Uh, please feel free to ask any questions or make any comments. Um, so uh, uh, 
is there a microphone yes. that you guys it, can? It, uh, a student wanted to ask about uh, your relation with Carl Hess. Ah, okay. Um, Carl Hess is an interesting character. When we first met him, he was a right winger, a um, uh, a Goldwater person. He was the one who uh, came up with this brilliant thing that what is it? Um, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in defense of liberty is no virtue. I, I, I think I got the gist of that. Uh, he was really a, a, a right wing type, a Goldwater type, you know, um, uh, pretty good. But, you know, and then he came under Murray's um, influence and I was part of the Murray living room crowd. So uh, Carl Hess was introduced and a very amiable, nice guy. And as the weeks and months went by, he became more and more libertarian. And then he had this um, uh, interview, I think, in Penthouse or Playboy or one of those, something like that. And he was really a, a, a Rothbardian. He was magnificent, very eloquent, a magnificent writer, a, um, a, a big boost to the Austro-Libertarian movement, to, to Rothbard. Uh, he was um, maybe... Um, second in command or second in prestige to even to Murray. Uh, he was a great guy, but then he kept moving left and left and left. And, you know, labor unions are great. And, and uh, I don't know, the hippies. And I don't mind that he kept dressing like a hippie. I don't care whether you're wearing a shirt and tie or, you know, work clothes or whatever. But but his views then then became more and more left. And, and you know, he sort of slid off the, the end of the earth. Uh, the earth is not round. It's uh, a cube. And he, he fell off the edge of the earth. Well, the edge of the Austro-Libertarian movement. He was still a very nice guy, very amiable, a, a magnificent public speaker. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of um, tangled with him. I try to convert him out of his leftism and also convert him out of his rightism uh, to, you know, that's why they call me Walter Moderate Block, because I'm a moderate Rothbardian <laughs> anarchist. So that would be my recollection of, of Carl Hess, a, a, a brilliant writer, a brilliant editor, very nice guy. Uh, and, and he, he just moved you know, from right to, to, to correct Rothbardianism, and then and he fell off the edge of the earth um, as a lefty. We have a student interested in, in your views on libertarian ethics and its connection with argumentation ethics of Dr. Hoppe. Oh, I'm a big fan of that. I, I think um, – let me, let me get back to my uh, share screen. So here's – whoops, boy, that's a mess. Here's my view of libertarianism. Libertarianism looks like a uh, Indian teepee, and I hope I'm not going to get in trouble with uh, the, uh, anyone for talking about Indians or native persons or whatever it is. Well, here is, here is um, libertarianism. This is the essence of libertarianism, right where the, uh, the sticks uh, cross. And that's the non-aggression principle and uh, private property rights. Well, what's what's this here? Well, these are the implications of libertarian. What's the libertarian view on on minimum wage? What's the libertarian view on um, legalizing prostitution? What's the legal libertarian view on um, I don't know whatever else? Well, what's this? What what this is is um, what's the justifications of libertarianism? Well, one of them is utilitarianism. Another is um, Ayn Rand would say A is A. Lori Rothbard, before he met Hans Hoppe, would say it's natural rights. Hans Hoppe came up with this thing from argumentation ethics, and it is just absolutely brilliant. 
what he says is the only way to get at the truth is through arguing, discussing. He's sort of um, channeling, um, um, uh, what's his name, um, uh, John Stuart Mill in On Liberty. The only way you can get to the truth is by allowing people to argue. So let's not have any cancel culture. I'm putting words in Hans's mouth, but, um, uh, and then he says, well, what do you need in order to have argument? <laughs> well, you need private property and you need the non-aggression principle. So I think this is absolutely brilliant. And not only do I think that this is absolutely brilliant, I wanna give Murray Rothbard a compliment. When Hans came over here, he was a young punk kid, pup, um, I don't know, 25, 28. And Murray was, you know, in his fifties. And Murray's view uh, for the justification of libertarianism was natural rights. And Hans had a very different view. Look, if you try to pull, if a lieutenant that Hans was and still is of Murray, uh, I mean that as a compliment, of course, if, if some lieutenant of Ayn Rand came up with a better way of uh, discussing objectivism, she would have kicked him out of the movement. Murray instead embraced Hans and said, yes, this is great. This is better than uh, my own view. Um, so uh, not only does Hans get credit for this, but Murray does too. So I'm a big, big fan of Hans's argumentation ethics. I'm a big fan of pretty much everything else he's written for that matter. But certainly the argumentation ethics is a magnificent way of justifying uh, libertarianism. Thank you, Dr. Block, for your, for your time this morning.